0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today is July 3rd, 2020. It is now around four months since Australia started experiencing an influx of COVID 19 cases, bringing the global pandemic to our shores. It's a little over three months since the country began significant shutdowns, physical distancing, and remote working. And it's a little over a month and a half since stage three of those restrictions began to lift. Over the past week, Australia's outstanding success in curbing the spread of the virus has been soured as Victoria experiences significant and escalating cases, particularly in Melbourne's northern suburbs. 77 new cases were reported yesterday, the highest number since just after the peak in March. A number of suburbs have returned to stage three restrictions and enormous testing and tracing effort is underway. Yesterday, more than 26,000 people were tested compared to just 3,000 when new cases were last at this level. Economic news is also beginning to show the scale of the social and economic cost of the virus and the measures to contain it. More than 800,000 people have lost their jobs since March. Australia's public purpose sectors recognise the enormous task before them. They face a multiple of waves of challenge and disruption, beginning with responding to the ongoing threat of the virus and maintaining services while under physical distancing restrictions, managing an enormous backlog as activities that had to be scaled down or delayed recommence, addressing rising complexity and complications of issues in the community, and reducing and addressing the fallout of the social and economic damage the pandemic has caused. Today we have with us Stuart Mosley, CEO of the Victorian Planning Authority. For those of you who don't know, the VPA is Victoria's urban growth planner, working with local governments and communities to plan for sustainable and livable places and bringing land to market to unlock Victoria's future urban growth. Stuart, thanks for being part of this conversation.
1: Thanks for the opportunity, Tom. Looking forward
0: to it. Well, to start, can I ask where you're speaking to us from this afternoon? What, what is Stuart Mosley's remote working setup, and, and how have you found it?
1: Well, of course, I'm speaking to you from uh, Melbourne, the, the capital of Sictoria, as we're now being known. And, and I heard a quite amusing uh, joke this morning, which is, you know, why is Australia a bit like the Spice Girls' second album? The answer is everyone's trying really hard, but Victoria is letting the side down. Um, Fantastic. So, uh, and within Melbourne, I'm, I'm talking from my upstairs, what was formerly the spare room, which my wife and I now share as our working from home headquarters. So we sort of oscillate between the upstairs room and the kitchen. And for me, I guess I've always struck, work, part of striking work-life balance for me has been putting boundaries around work so that I can protect downtime at home. So I've found it quite challenging as those two merge as my wife said, we, we had to go away last weekend just to get out of the office. My way of coping with that is I deliberately haven't set up a working from home. I haven't brought my chair home, haven't brought my monitors home. I work as light as possible. And at the end of the day, I shut the laptop and do my very best not to open it again until the next
0: working day. I wonder how often prior to the crisis would you work from home? Is this a, something you would do from time to time or is it an entirely brand new experience?
1: since i moved back into the public sector i haven't done it much at all when i was in consulting i used to do it semi-regularly it's it's quite good if you want to just free yourself from distractions and bang out a piece of work not so good if you're a leader of people and you get energy from those interactions and it's part of your leadership style to have those spontaneous unstructured interactions so for me personally i'll be glad when i can get back to the workplace but For my staff, we've got about 110 staff and going into pre-COVID, there was about 20% of those who who worked from home sometime each week, which is not a huge number really. Our most recent survey, the staff survey, indicates that now 92% of our staff want to be working from home at least some of the time and typically it's two or three days a week. So I think we will see... That's one of the positive legacies, I think, of COVID, is it will normalise working from home. And I think it'll force all organisations to not, not just say that it's something they support, but actually live it. Because I think historically, you know, our organisation, probably like many, has offered working from home by exception, with approval. And so it's tended to be seen as something that is an exception. Whereas I think when we get back to accessing
0: workplaces, it'll be seen as uh, the new normal. Now, um, like just about every organisation, you, you mentioned uh, beginning plenty of people working from home. The VPA has obviously been significantly constrained in what it can do to help as part of the restrictions to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Uh, what have those meant for the VPA? What, mm. Particularly, what, what activities have you had to do differently? What, what ones have you had to suspend? And you know, yeah, what are the operations of the VPA look like uh, in a physically distant world?
1: Yeah, so I guess we are fortunate in that our work lends itself to being done remotely. So what we typically produce is a planning instrument, a structure plan, a planning scheme, an infrastructure charging plan. To prepare those, a lot of the work is back office work. It's desk work, it's research, it's analytics, it's preparing position papers, it's justifying policy responses. Interspersed with that are pieces of stakeholder-facing work. So... We do need to bring agency, you know, government and council stakeholders around the table to co-design stuff. We do need to engage affected communities and know what the affected publics think and want from the plans we're preparing. Those bits that aren't back office bits, we've had to think hard about and do differently. So, uh, and in some cases, we have had to pause. So, for example, a lot of the agency co-design work, we have translated to online so we've actually managed to run successful interactive um, design workshops that you know originally we would have never considered doing that way um, and obviously a whole lot of just routine meetings and those sorts of things they are easy to translate it's the community facing stuff that is harder so we are in the consultation phase at the moment on a very uh, significant structure plan for an urban renewal precinct in Melbourne, the Arden precinct. And um, we did have to think about how will we make that accessible uh, to as many people as as we can. Um, But these days, more and more people are digitally literate, not everyone, but you can uh, get a fair, people are articulate, are engaged, and in fact, for many of the younger generation, that's their preference. They wanna be providing their input on handheld devices and coming to a public meeting or a workshop is not something that fires them up at all. So we, we've had to look at how we do our work, not just ours, but how our stakeholders might have to make their decisions too. So there's a government panel that reviews rezonings in Victoria called Planning Panels Victoria. They've had to go entirely online and to do that they had to change the legislation. So their legislation didn't let them conduct hearings other than in person without the agreement of all parties. So they now have got that changed. So local governments in Victoria were required to meet in person. They could not, under their legislation, make decisions unless they met in person. And so the government had to change that legislation too. And that was important for us because we need councils to provide decisions at certain points about the work we do. So to answer your question, some processes we control, we've re-engineered. Some we don't entirely control, we've repositioned. Other stakeholders have had to change the way they do things and sometimes that slowed us down. But by and large, because most of our work, we can progress significantly using remote platforms. We, we haven't been slowed down uh, much at all, which is, which is good. Because the government wants to be stimulating the construction industry at this time, so producing more zoned land for development is, is part of that
0: contribution. I'd love to come back to consultation in particular and and your experiences there. I mean, what about you as a leader of a a significant organisation? You mentioned a a team of 100 or more. How have you managed to get everyone online and work remotely? How do you manage to keep your team Mm. sort of on track and motivated and and all those things?
1: Yeah, it's really forced the leadership team... Into you know, it's actually welded us together as a much tighter leadership unit than before, which is which is really good because it's it's completely new. Nobody's done this before, and um, we were lucky. I guess I've mentioned our work lends itself to being done remotely. We'd also invested about a year prior to COVID in the technology that our staff needed to to work, you know, mobile working technology, and those so those things meant we were pretty seamless in actually moving people out of the office. I think it's gonna be a lot harder getting people back into the office than it was to get them out. But the the challenges, so once you address those enablers of technology and business processes, the two big challenges really are are productivity and wellbeing. And for leaders, particularly in the public sector, who, who maybe haven't spent a lot of time managing outputs, tasks, time, in the way that a consulting practice might and um, that's been a that's been a challenge and for me personally that the personal dimension I've realized how much I do learn and read the corporate environment from what I see in here and, and these spontaneous interactions as you work walking from one meeting to another or as you're reading the room before a meeting starts as you see someone not looking perhaps as they normally do and you can follow that up you know all of that's been being closed down. So, so what did we do? I guess we first of all we all we we, we realized this is big. None of us had done it before. We made sure as a leadership team we had we met three times a week for as long as we needed. We had a business continuity plan, which we activated. And then I guess really around those things of productivity and well-being, we we just emphasized communication. So I instituted weekly staff briefings. We, I I allow, encourage um, anonymous questioning so that we try and flush out any concerns that are out there. We do a six weekly pulse check on how staff are traveling. We tried to really double down on role clarity. What are are we actually, what are we accountable for here? How are we gonna deliver that? And what are you accountable for? And how do we support you to deliver that? We were able to rally people around what I think was a pretty compelling Agenda from government. So almost immediately we had the minister and the treasurer asking our board what can the VPA do to stimulate the construction economy? What can you speed up? What can you bring to market faster? So that gave the organisation a bit of a lightning rod to to snap onto in terms of right, well, we you know, there's not it's not just a matter of continuing, it's a matter of reprioritising. What do we need to do faster as a result of that? What do we do slower to free up resource? So it gave us a, a cause. The cause was not just surviving COVID, the cause was delivering for government. So, um, so that, that sort of saw us through quite well for the first month or so. But now that it looks like it's gonna last a lot longer, the diversity of responses in the organisation amongst the staff is the real challenge. For some people, this is the best thing that's ever happened to them. They're at home, they you know, Some of them were commuting three hours a day, so they don't have to do that. Some of them are quite happy if they never come back into the office. Some of them are very unhappy being at home. And for some of them, it's actually a, um, a well-being. you know, there are some people whose homes don't suit working, you know, they might have difficult caring relationships, they might have in a share house, they might. So at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are just completely over this and, and want it to end and are starting now to feel isolated, disconnected from their colleagues. So moving forward, I guess we really, we really are thinking, well, how do you, so much of culture is lived and observed on a day-to-day basis. If that's not happening, how do you substitute for that? Particularly for staff who might be coming on board. And I think we all know how important the first few weeks in an organisation are. It's how you form your impressions, you feel the energy, you feel that it's, it's much harder to do that over a computer screen. So I hope I haven't ranged too wide there. I'm happy to drill down on any aspect. But, you know, it, it, we're fortunate that um, the Pulse survey we've just done tells us that, our staff are travelling on average well, but the average hides some people who are definitely struggling and some people who are thriving. So it's a mix.
0: Yeah, and no, I, I suspect too the people who are struggling and the people who are thriving, probably not a constant batch too. There's probably, if they're anything like me, we're on a bit of a roller coaster and you might you might be thriving one week and, and not the next. All right, really interesting challenge, isn't it, to... Um, to be in a world in which communication and presence, I suppose, from a, from a leader in particular is so vital and important. And yet Zoom fatigue also being a real thing and, and balancing, you know, communication with also the potential to feel like you're almost hounding people electronically for, for, for too much of it. Have you found anything, any particular tips or anything that you've found about good ways to communicate with your staff that, yeah, to kind of mitigate those two challenges, that, that balance?
1: I guess some of it is corporate. So we agreed as a leadership team early on. So everyone would have the chance to see the CEO once a week. Everyone would have the chance to see their group head at least, we started it twice a week. I think that's gone back to one. And everybody would meet, have a one-on-one with their manager at least once a week. And that was the sort of the bedrock of corporate, group and individual interactions. And I guess we, my aim was that people felt over communicated with. I actually was hoping people would say we don't, and that started to come through a bit. We do, people are now saying, look, really, this is thank you very much, but a bit less. And that's, so that's okay. Because to me, it it is all about, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you've told them. Just keep sending the the message about the, the organisation's trajectory. You know, we are going somewhere. Here's what we've achieved. Here's what we're doing next. Um, so that try and foster a sense, really, of understanding how individuals' work tasks still do fit in a bigger piece, even though you can't see
0: it around you on a daily basis. I really enjoyed your point also, too, about just the importance of having a sense of um, sort of mission and yeah, sort of goals and, and strategy during this mm. time, I- I certainly know many around the public service particularly if you're a little bit out of the spotlight you're not you're not the health front line we're all pretty motivated to do something to help victoria's response or recovery and certain parts of the public sector can feel sort of out of the spotlight and yet really wanting to you know really motivated by by adding value and helping victoria it sounds like the vpa has had from the beginning a a sense of that you know that we we have a role to play in this as well
1: absolutely and it's got a a third horizon to it as well. So we've we sort of been thinking about three horizons, the immediate one of just getting out of the office and being productive, the second one of, of doubling down on delivering the important things government wants, and that's going to take us the next year, really. But then beyond that, the third horizon, there is a lot of discussion in government, and you know this is the biggest economic crisis for a century. What, do we, what does government need to do differently to manage and stimulate the economy as we come out of that? And planning, because it relates to property investment and housing choices and where and how people work, is, it, is really at the centre of a whole lot of discussions about can the planning system get better outcomes more efficiently, faster than it has. And so we're optimistic that out of those discussions, there'll be a, a third horizon role for the VPA in, um, you know, our, our point of difference is the, is the structure planning for growth in designated areas. Can we be a sharper tool in the government's toolkit to do more of that, to do it better, to do it faster, so that we can contribute to what's going to be a big economic rebuilding task?
0: That's a great place to go next with our conversation, I think. Um, I think what you described as your second horizon is probably something similar to what we described as our, our second wave in, in in our recent report, the idea of a built-up uh, backlog of, of effort and demand that's really needed to be done quickly and efficiently to help Victoria get to help kickstart the recovery and particularly not to be any sort of sand in the wheels of the recovery what is that sort of backlog or pressure of activity that coming on the VPA what is what does that look like particularly in relation obviously to the economic recovery agenda what what does that look like and and what are you guys doing to to manage that that big wave of demand coming on your organisation
1: yeah so because we're not a public facing transaction organization we don't have we don't have a front counter where people you know ask for something and we give them a decision we're not we don't for instance approve planning permits what our job is is to is to, to make sure there's a pipeline of zoned land that is coming into the marketplace in key locations so that the industry can build the communities that the future of Victoria needs so our work for instance, in Greenfields, Melbourne, is, is the most prominent. where We're the planning authority for the fast-growing outer suburbs of Melbourne. And um, historically, those areas have coped with between a third and a half of Melbourne's net population growth annually. So that's a significant number of lots and houses. Now, we were just coming out of a, of a downturn when COVID hit. So... On the one hand, it's likely land consumption in the greenfields will will slow significantly for the next two, three years, maybe four, but probably not much longer than that. So whilst on the one hand, you might say, well, that means you can slow down a bit then. In fact, the government has asked the reverse for a couple of reasons. One is they want to send a strong message to the industry and to the community that Victoria is open for business. This is still a place where you can make your future. Uh, housing affordability and choice is still important. The second one is we want a nice big stock of land for when we come out of the downturn. And the third one is, you know, ideal time when growth slows to try and get ahead of the, the growth curve. So I suppose that in terms of your model, it's not as if we have a whole lot of services that we're putting off and that will back up and overwhelm us. And I can well imagine in health, that must be a huge issue. So to clear the hospitals for elective surgery, and then have to catch that up later. That that's a big deal. So, so I guess what for, for us, it's more a matter of at any one point in time we have over a hundred projects going. Which of those do we want to accelerate? Which of them do we slow? And which of them do we pause? Then we will adjust, you know, as things, as we finish things, we'll bring new ones on. So yeah, really that, that's a slight variant, I think, of, of the model that you've been talking about, reflecting that. We're not, we're not actually a transaction-driven service delivery agency in
0: that sense. I know there's been some wonderful and enjoyable sort of speculation of what, what this all might mean for Victoria's urban growth. You know, obviously, net migration being a big part of our population growth over the last little while, the urbanisation of population. You mentioned working from home and, and, and the proportion of people who want to live within commuting distance of the CBD, for example. I'm sure a lot of that is gazing into crystal balls, but do you have any um, interesting speculations or reflections on on what might come for Vic- for Victoria, particularly for urban areas?
1: It's really interesting. There's a whole lot of discussion going on. I guess people are speculating. You know, could could this mean a flight to the suburbs and the regional towns as people fear density and living at proximity? Could it mean a diminishing of the central city's economic role as people don't come into offices as much and work in their homes or in suburban centres? Could it mean everybody's too scared to use public transport so our roads are choked? Could it mean that mass civic gatherings and the spaces they need are a thing of the past? Does it mean agglomeration economies are a thing of the past, you know, the end of hot desking, the end of co-working spaces? I think it's too early to tell and there will be an immediate fear reaction that will change people's behaviour. But then things will settle. How quickly is is a moot point. And cities are resilient. You know, when you think of how cities have evolved, for for instance, the uh, the inner cities of Australian capitals, particularly Sydney and Melbourne, uh, at the turn of the last century, were in parts terrible places to live. They were overcrowded. They were unsanitary. They were, you know, bubonic plague swept the rocks in Sydney in the early nineteen hundreds. You know, it wasn't medieval. It was as a result of that, actually, town planning in Australia had its birth. It was born out of that. How do we avoid those unsanitary living conditions? But those environments, a lot of them, are now the most sought-after places to live anywhere, and they're still physically the same. You know, a terrace in Paddington now is the same as it was when people, when kids were dying of diphtheria there, and a terrace in, you know, a cottage in Collingwood is the same now as when there were a family of twelve living in it but they're very, very sought after because they're not, it's not so much the density as the crowding and what goes with it. And they now offer amenity, accessibility, cultural diversity, access to employment and opportunities. So I guess that's sort of rambling about a bit, but I'm, I'm, an, ur- I'm an urban optimist. I think cities are resilient. We will see a short term shift, but the challenge is getting the positive legacy. Like If we do have more people working from home or in suburban office hubs, and less cramming onto trains to go into the city every morning and come out every every night. That'd be a good thing. If we do have people valuing localism, you know, shopping locally, accessing opportunities locally, that'd be a good thing. But if we end up sprawling out into the countryside at low density in a car-dependent urban areas, that'd be a bad thing. If we end up with nowhere to innovate, you know, in the creative sector and That'd be a bad thing if we don't get our arts and culture and tourism economies back. That'd be a bad thing. So, time will tell. But I, th- I think history shows cities are resilient and things will come back. In the end, people will still value quality of life, access to opportunities, uh, and a price
0: they can afford. My other, my other favourite speculation at the moment is is what, um, how to not waste a good crisis, and particularly yes. you know what what opportunity we talked about remote working, of course, but. Um, from, a, from a planning policy perspective, is there, are there elements of this crisis that give you opportunities to, to do good things in that way that you wouldn't normally have? What, 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 are, the, what are those positive legacies that, you, that you're chasing after at the moment?
1: Yeah, there certainly are. I think working from home is one. There are a whole lot of benefits to working from home for at least some of the time in terms of health, well-being, family time, demand on infrastructure networks, that'd be good. I think that will be that will be a, a definite, I think. That will be with us. There's also a huge opportunity. I, I saw some stats the other day that indi- indicated the number of people now walking or cycling instead of mainly taking public transport but sometimes driving. That's gone up. That'd be great to hold on to that too. How do we hold on to that? The challenge, of course, will be unless we invest in the infrastructure that that needs, you know, cycle lanes and protected environments for, for walking. Unless we invest in that, then there's actually a risk because I think we can guarantee there'll be more people driving when we come back from this, which could actually squeeze those people, the cyclists and pedestrians out. But there's an opportunity that is time limited that should be taken. So I think um, when I was in Sydney in the 90s, we worked on a metropolitan plan. and One of the papers I remember writing has been quite a junior planner it was about Telecommuting, and you know, we'll, we won't need cars. We won't need to drive. We'll, we'll all be working from home. Now that was, you know, that was twenty something years ago, and still going into COVID, the numbers of people working from home was quite low. But I think coming out of this, they
0: will be, they will be high, and and that is an opportunity. Well, I think your point about appreciation of our local communities, our our daily walk, when the restrictions were at it's their height and and just the enjoyment or otherwise of our local communities just become that much more important for everyone and and that is a that is an opportunity isn't it that is an opportunity for us
1: Um, and the social interactions we saw happening on our streets you know neighbors talking to each other when they didn't used to people discovering local open spaces that they hadn't probably used or known was there before there again only some areas are suited to do that so some of them a lot of inner melbourne has that sort of you know village feel and those main streets mostly can can do that job. But once you get into you know car dependent post-second war Melbourne, not so many opportunities. So the idea of, of localism, not not all of our suburbs are actually ready to, to take that. So it's another example of where a bit of bit of intervention will be needed
0: if they are to assume that role. I want to come back to the topic of consultation. You mentioned VPA's role either working with local councils or or your um, decision-making forums or with local communities you've you mentioned earlier that a lot of those things are now able to be done online and and others uh, tell us more about that what it, what have you learnt and and how has presumably things that were previously done face-to-face now now done virtually how, how's the experience of that
1: yeah so i guess there's a sense in which some people might say we should have been doing this anyway so delivering interactive webinars on facebook live or Zoom is probably something we should have been doing anyway, so we, we just have leapt, leapt into it. Telephone hotlines, rather than staffed information booths, we should have been doing that anyway. And so in some senses, it's just pushed us to move ahead of that curve. But, and particularly, and here I must say, I am a, a social media Luddite, but I know we, we've put a lot of work into making better use of Facebook as an actual value-added engagement tool, There's something I'm told called established sentiment analysis methodology. So you can actually harvest from people's smartphones, which can actually give you a lot of information about what you regard as important, about your local neighbourhood, about how long you stay in particular places and how often you visit them. So we're keen to sort of see what we can harvest from that as well, which which may not be a formal tell us what you think type engagement. But it can present a picture of what's special in a neighbourhood and therefore what do we need to bear in mind as we do our planning. Another example, we, we do these things, co-design sessions, we, we call them, where landowners, agencies, developers will front up and talk about their vision for an area and put plans on the table and say, here's what we think should happen. And we've actually managed to, to translate that to, to Zoom quite effectively. So people still feel as if, Which surprised us because we thought that would have to be an interactive, get out the butter paper type function. But I guess what it leaves us with is needing to be very mindful of those sectors of the community who don't engage digitally. So typically, older people, some but not all, people who don't actually have the internet. It's surprising there are a number who don't. And so, making sure, so for instance, we still are going to, we're still doing in Arden an extensive letterbox drop. So we're still putting a piece of paper in somebody's letterbox saying, here's what we're doing and we want to know what you think. But then as many choices as possible. So yes, you can write us a written submission. You can go onto the web and fill out a question questionnaire. You can ring the hotline and tell us what you think over the phone. You can come. We will have, and we have to be careful about this, but we will still have staffed information sessions which comply with the social distancing requirements, so we're fortunate that when that project isn't affected by the postcode lockdown. So it's, it's about, I suppose, to, to summarise, accelerating a transition that we probably should have been, well, we were making anyway, but it's happening faster. It's about finding alternate techniques that might get the most out of social media and, and the sort of data that we, we we yield as we walk around with our phones. But we have to make sure there's lots of choice because everybody is is different and not everyone can or wants
0: to engage digitally. Sounds like though that challenge of those who, who can't or, or don't particularly want to um, engage digitally, it, it is a, a containable one. You mentioned the letterbox dropping and all and, the possibility of arranging a face-to-face if and when folks are interested rather than that being the default mechanism. It, that, that seems to be a pretty good way of reducing the scale of, of, of face-to-face and, and moving a lot digitally. Yeah, and you know, we're very keen to avoid,
1: and you know, we haven't operated this yeah. way probably ever in our life but there was a time where you know planning consultation was consisted of a note uh, an ad in the paper a small box somewhere in the classified saying you know you can look at the office of the council and you can lodge a written submission you know that that's
0: by no means cutting the mustard particularly now and that's a good thing i think maybe before we close asking you to gaze in the crystal ball one more time. How do you see the next um, couple of months playing out for you or, or, or year, in fact, with your view of a, of a second horizon? I guess, what are you looking forward to? What are you feeling What are you feeling optimistic about? And, and yeah, what do you mm-hmm. think we'll learn over the next couple of months?
1: So I think what, um, what's exciting about all this, and there is some stuff that's not exciting, you know, let's face it, there's some hard work for organisations, for leaders, for public sector workers in all of this. But the exciting thing is the opportunity coming out the other end to do things better, not just in terms of process but also outcome. So for us, um, you know, we're committed to, to helping create sustainable, livable, walkable communities for tomorrow's Victorians. So how can we do that better, more widespread? Like we've, we've got an ambition to make more of a difference in established Melbourne. So in terms of Melbourne's growth as a city, the importance of providing more housing choice in the well-serviced inner and middle suburbs has never been greater. The more of that we can do, the less people will need to move to the outer suburbs, uh, unless they want to, it is a matter of choice. But as a, as a planning authority, we'd love to be working more closely and deeply on pro- unlocking priority areas in established Melbourne. Uh, we'd also love to, to continue and strengthen our work in regional cities, particularly the big ones and the ones close to Melbourne. So we would like to come out of this. And I think if if there is a heightened emphasis on delivering well-planned land for development and growth, we ought to have a key role to play. I think the other challenge we'd really like to see the spotlight on coming out of this is, is how government prioritises and invests in the infrastructure these communities. Our Arden project is a great example where it's got a metro station right underneath it. So it just makes eminent sense to have a mixed use, medium density community built on top of it. Where else can we do that? Suburban Rail Loop is going to be a great opportunity for government coming out of this to, to do that. So I suppose the opportunity to deliver more and better planned land to market is, is one we really excited about and in the meantime we've got a very busy 12 months to speed up those priority projects so government can be pump priming the economy when it
0: starts to come back we've been speaking with Stuart Mosley from the Victorian Planning Authority it was a great conversation thanks for being a part of this Stuart pleasure thanks Tom